What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. You know, producer man Charles Beery has no regard for whether we're finished with our private conversations or we're not finished with our private conversations. He's a slave to the clock. When it rolls over, he rolls the intro and we're going. Well, he gets the intro right. Yeah, well, there he goes. And he he even pots the host up once in a blue moon there. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. We ask that question every day. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We would love for you to answer that question today. Give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. If you're outside of the United States and Canada, you can call us at 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Uh, Charles Beery, the aforementioned one, is producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. And all of those gentlemen are just happy to not be in the studio, David, because it's a little warm down here. It's getting kind of hot in here. And we've got some little some air conditioning issues and some supply chain issues associated with getting the air conditioning fixed. So we, dear listener, are ferrying through for you. So fear not. We're going nowhere. Got an email here from uh, Adam in the great state of Mississippi. He says, Dr. Anders, can you once again discuss imputation of sin and righteousness regarding Christ's atonement? I always feel like I understand it after hearing you, and I really do think I grasp it, but I get confused when I read verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, For God made him who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the justice of God in him. I understand how the imputation of sin to Christ makes God unjust, because he condemns the innocent and acquits the guilty. I also do understand how Christ's sacrifice is meritorious for our sake and pleases God so that redeeming grace is offered to us. I cherish this understanding of Christ's sacrifice because it makes more sense to me. Then I read this passage and I completely question it all over again because it does seem to say that Jesus becomes our sin. How is this not imputation? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, of course, the text doesn't say it's imputation. And the, the text, I admit, is, is fairly enigmatic, left the way it's stated. Um, it, it, now, the, the typical Protestant or Reformed interpretation is to say, well, Christ becomes sin for us insofar as God reckons our sin as if Christ had committed it. But that, that's an interpretation that goes way over and above what the text actually says. Now, what many interpreters believe, and I think is quite plausible, is that what's being asserted here is that God made Christ into a sin offering. 
Now, there is a specific kind of offering, a Levitical sacrifice mentioned in the Old Testament, called a sin offering. And you will even find in many modern uh, critical translations of the Bible a footnote on this verse. Uh, and you look at the footnote, and it says, you know, Christ became sin, parenthesis, or sin offering on our behalf. Just meaning that Christ is, a, is this specific, uh, analogized to this specific form of Hebrew sacrifice. Or another way of putting it would be Christ was made an offering for sin. All right, so that's one way to hold it. Here's another way to hold it. Um, there are many passages in St. Paul where he speaks about the death of Christ as the death of sin, as if sin itself were personified. Um, uh, the death of hell, uh, the death of death, uh, these, uh, these cosmic forces that wage war against the human person, and the death of Christ is understood to be uh, the conquest of those things, not not legal status, right? But um, uh, but uh, uh, but personified forces that wage war against the human person, and uh, this is all these sort of summed up into the idea of Christ the Victor, Christus Victor is the concept. Um, it was a famous book by Gustav Olein, Lutheran Swedish theologian, uh, about this model of the atonement where Christ dies. Uh, to defeat the forces and the powers of evil. Uh, in the Byzantine tradition, in the Eastern Catholic tradition, there's a strong emphasis on what's called the harrowing of hell, Christ's descent to the dead where he rescued uh, the fathers of the Old Covenant and uh, uh, douses the flames of the gates of hell and so forth to, to release souls, and this kind of thing, this sort of imagery. And so the, I think it's also a way of reading this text is, you know, Christ becomes uh, this character, this, uh, this archetypal character uh, who descends in conflict with these forces of sin, death, hell, and the devil in order to defeat them and liberate the human person. There's just so many more models of understanding the atonement that make sense of this text within the larger context of the New Testament without the need to import this, uh, this uh, Reformed theological, this pro Protestant uh, theological innovation. And, of course, the larger context of St. Paul, he goes into great depths about how the death of Christ works, and it's never by way of imputed righteousness. So Romans chapter 3, Paul says that Christ died uh, as a sacrifice of atonement, and that is emphatically not penal substitution or, or the imputation of sin and or righteousness. And uh, Carol writes in, if Christ had not risen yet and opened the gates of heaven, where were Moses and Elijah existing at the time of the transfiguration? The Limbus of the Fathers, an intermediate state uh, of natural happiness, but not the beatific vision as they awaited the coming of the Messiah. So they just get like a phone call? Uh, did they get a phone call? Said join us up here on uh, no, I think the they mountain got, for I a think minute. They got, I think they got the soul of Christ ascended to the dead. <laughs> and carried him off for a couple hours? And uh, carried him off for the rest of eternity. Well, I'm talking about the transfiguration. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm still stuck in the, um, I'm still stuck in the harrowing of hell. <laughs> okay. I, my mind was on the wrong track. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So they would have been the Limbus of the Fathers, to be sure. And, you know, for, until, until the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's not open line, but call to communion with Dr. David Andrews.
I'd like to invite you to join deeper in your understanding, to journey deeper, rather, in your understanding of the Eucharistic mystery and understand the Eucharistic story of God's love for us from the Old Testament to the institution of the Eucharist. Simply download the free ebook, The Twelve Stations of the Most Holy Eucharist, and you can do that at EWTN.com slash Catholicism. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. First up today is James in Orlando, Florida, watching us on YouTube. James, you're on with Dr. Anders. Uh, thank you for your program. Uh, I won't take up too much of your time because I know you have other callers. Um, I'm a Catholic, and I kind of was just a little bit confused about doctrine development and how it relates to specifically the Marian dogmas, and I was kind of having some theories in my mind, um, and I'm not sure if there could be valid in Catholic theology or not, that is, would it be possible that the apostles weren't even aware of Mary being the new Eve or her being immaculately conceived, but as time went on, their disciples were guided by the Holy Spirit, and they came to this conclusion through reading Scripture and being guided in the councils. And I was just uh, hopefully, Dr. David Andrews can help me flesh this idea of doctrine development out a little bit for me. Sure, sure, absolutely. Appreciate the question. So the the earliest Marian dogma uh, would be, of course, the dogma of uh, Mary's perpetual virginity. Uh, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ was closely allied to the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and this is a doctrine that was universally held in Christian antiquity. You just don't find uh, Mariological reflection without it. It's so ubiquitous, so widespread, in fact, that even early Protestants and 17th century Protestants who were otherwise inclined to reject Marian dogma uh, felt very queasy in the stomach and weak in the knees about rejecting her perpetual virginity. Now, close on the heels of the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity was the doctrine that Mary is the second Eve. According to John Henry Cardinal Newman, St. John Henry Newman, uh, the doctrine of the second Eve was the was really the the first major Marian dogma outside of what's you know explicitly stated in the Bible. Um, that you know by way of implication of what's in the Bible, I should say, uh, to be universally accepted in the Church, and it's you find it throughout all of the second century fathers. This is this is how they understand the redemption. They think about Christ as the second Adam, which of course is a biblical doctrine, um, and Mary is the logical counterpart there, and I do think it's strongly hinted at in the Bible that she is the second Eve. And it, it doesn't take too much uh, creativity to, to reason from her identity as the second Eve, recognizing that if she stands in this kind of archetypal relationship to the people of God, uh, the book of Revelation says that she is the mother of all those who believe in Christ, that she is, in a very special sense, related to our rebirth in Jesus, even as uh, Eve was to our physical parturition, uh, that, that that rebirth affecting um, our moral purification, uh, that the what would eventually develop into the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception would have a very close connection to her identity as the second Eve. Uh, but that's later on down the road. Um, uh, very early on, uh, Mary was always venerated uh, as a saint, of course, and as the greatest of the saints. Uh, but very early on, she was also venerated under the title of Mother of God, uh, as the doctrine of Christ's divinity became more and more explicit 
uh, the significance, the dignity of the Blessed Virgin Mary is likewise recognized. And so in the 250s, so mid-3rd century, we have uh, archaeological evidence, we have documentary evidence of Alexandrian Christians venerating the Blessed Virgin under the title of Mother of God. Now, the fact that the the textual evidence we have dates to the 250s does not mean that the title dates from the 250s. It's likely older than that. These are just the oldest manuscripts that we have, but there is very likely a tr- an oral tradition that goes back earlier than that. So M- M- Mother of God uh, as a title, uh, clearly, clearly in, in uh, existence by the, uh, by the mid-3rd century. Um, and, of course, it's enshrined as a dogma at the Council of Ephesus in 431. So by the 5th century, it's officially dogmatically defined as one of Mary's titles and her, her most uh, august and noble identity. Uh, the doctrine of, um, uh, of her uh, assumption is a little bit harder to date. We can find feasts of her assumption, uh, liturgical feasts celebrated in late antiquity um, uh, at the Council of Ephesus. Um, there is uh, a discussion of her uh, having ascended into heaven uh, that wasn't proclaimed as a dogma. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it is a liturgical feast. It's recognized east and west, but seems to have been a later development. And then, of course, the, the doctrine of her Immaculate Conception was worked out theologically in the Middle Ages and not formally defined until the 19th century. But all of them, it's sort of like the Russian dolls. You know, you, you peel back one layer and you find a more basic layer underneath. All of Marian dogmas are entailed um, in her fundamental identity as uh, the one who was chosen to be the mother of God in the second Eve. The others are sort of entailments of that. What about the notion of the apostles having much knowledge of these? Oh, right, sure. Well, to be sure, the, the apostles would not have had familiarity with the vocabulary of later dogmatic definitions. I mean, if you had approached an apostle and spoken about, you know, in terms of, say, the doctrine of the Trinity or, uh, uh, you know, the, the precise formulation of uh, the Chalcedonian formula for Christ's two natures or Mary's Immaculate Conception, they, they wouldn't have known the vocabulary, right? Because theology as a discipline develops and it develops its own idiosyncratic vocabulary. If you explained the concepts to them and their connection to divine revelation, they would have said, oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. May, may not have explicitly proclaimed it charismatically in their evangelistic endeavors, but they would see the logic of it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Sharon Liss is on the EWTN app, and she wants to know, what does it mean in Exodus chapter 11 when it says, The Lord made Pharaoh obstinate? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So the, the Catholic position is that God doesn't ever compel the human will. God never compels the human will. Um, God offers grace to everyone, uh, and we have the opportunity to freely cooperate or not with that grace. Um, Now, there is a debate in Catholic theology over one question, and uh, well, many questions, but here's one pertinent to to your uh, inquiry. When someone responds to the grace that God has offered, well, that response itself is a work of grace, right? Otherwise, we could ascribe something to the human person. We could say, well, God offers the grace, but really, hey, it's completely up to us whether we take it. So there's something creditable to the human 
that we that he's praiseworthy for. The difference between you know you accepting grace and somebody else not accepting grace is well, you're just that much better a guy or better a gal. And the church has always resisted that. That's that's actually uh, the doctrine of semi-Pelagianism. Or, or similarly, semi-Pelagius really held that uh, you know we ask God for grace, and then He gives it, and then we go on from there. And the church says, no, no, even the even asking God for grace is itself a work of grace. So what makes the difference between the soul that says yes to grace and the soul that says no? And there are really two schools of thought about this, uh, and they're both allowable within Catholic theology. Uh, The Dominicans, uh, the Thomists, uh, typically take the view that God enables the soul specifically to say yes uh, to the grace that's universally offered, and that he doesn't do that for everyone, right? So some people are given what's called efficacious grace, a grace that enables the will, uh, uh, comes before and enables the will in a very specific way to say yes to that universal offer of grace. It's like grace upon grace. Uh, But that leaves us with the mystery of why God doesn't give efficacious grace to everyone. And so unsatisfied with that, uh, the Jesuits, adopted a position uh, named after de Molina, it's called Molinism, that holds that, well, God grants efficacious grace. He gives that push to the will to those whom he foreknows by his middle knowledge. That's knowledge of counterfactuals, knowledge of what would happen if. He gives that grace to some souls because he knows that they'll make a good use of it. So in each case, the push to the will comes from God, but On the one, it's kind of a mystery. On the other, there's some intelligibility based on God's foreknowledge of of future events. Both of those are allowable. In the case of Pharaoh, what we hold is not that God moved in and prevented the will of Pharaoh from cooperating with grace, but that he doesn't give that positive push to the will. Right, so that Pharaoh really is personally responsible for his actions, but God stands back and lets Pharaoh hang himself on his own petard, if you will. Mark is in Houston, Texas. He's listening to us on Guadalupe Radio today. Mark, you're on with Dr. David Andrews. Hey, good afternoon. How are y'all? Great. Thanks. How about you? Good, thank you. I wanted to respectfully disagree about your um, conversation at the beginning of the program about the righteousness of God. Absolutely. Uh, there are a couple of... There are a couple of scriptures that I wanted to uh, mention. One is um, Philippians 3.9, where Paul makes the distinction between establishing our righteousness and receiving the righteousness of God. Um, he says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. All right, stop right there. Is... Let's stop right there. Let's, let's do one at a time, okay? Um, that's in the Catholic Bible. Catholics know that verse. Catholics agree that we do not establish our own righteousness, but that we receive righteousness as a gift from God. That is the Catholic doctrine. All right? That doesn't mean that the righteousness we receive from God is imputed. The Catholic position, which I believe is what Paul teaches, is that God infuses righteousness into us that he changes our character. We're born again in grace through baptism and faith by the Holy Spirit, that God's love is poured into our hearts, Romans 5, 5, circumcises our hearts, changes our hearts, and the one whose heart has been changed thereby 
Romans 2, 25 and 29 tells us, is then enabled to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, not on his own steam, but because the love of God moves him to specific acts of obedience that can be credited to him as legitimate acts of virtue for which he is rewarded on the last day. St. Augustine said, God crowns his own gifts. He gives us that whereby we do righteous deeds, then rewards us for those righteous deeds. Agreed, we don't establish our righteousness by following the Mosaic law. Rather, it is the gift of God working grace into our hearts, but not via imputation. Go ahead. So what would the difference be between infusing righteousness and imputing righteousness? Uh, infusing righteousness changes the character of the believer such that Christ can look at the soul and say, in truth, well done, good and faithful servant. You really have loved God and loved neighbor. By my power, you've loved God and loved neighbor, and therefore I can uh, reward you. You know, Jesus says, if you give even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, God will reward you. There's genuine merit, there's genuine reward for human cooperation. Imputation teaches that the soul can remain at enmity with God in his will, can remain at enmity with God and enmity with his brother, uh, trapped in concupiscence, selfishness, and pride, and that God counts the soul as righteous for God's sake, even though the soul remains objectively mired in sin. The metaphor that Martin Luther used was a dunghill covered in snow. Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously just and a sinner. That's the characteristically Lutheran Protestant position, that God acquits you, admits you to the kingdom of heaven, grants you eternal life, in spite of the fact that your moral life remains vitiated. The Catholic position is God admits you to eternal life by transforming your moral life, making you into a fundamentally good person, pouring his love into your heart. It's God's initiative. It's God's work. It happens exclusively through faith. On that we agree. But the actual nature of the transformation for a Catholic is a real moral transformation versus a merely change of legal status. And that's the the Lutheran or Reformed position. Uh, the second verse is Romans 4, 6. Uh, it says, Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputes righteousness without works. Um, yeah, okay. So in that context, now, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the Greek here. It, what, is being, what is being reckoned as righteousness in this case? Now, for the Protestant position to work, we would have to conclude that the righteousness that God is accounting, that he's reckoning, is in fact Jesus's specific acts of obedience counted as if they were the believers. Right? That's the Protestant view. That's the view that the Catholic Church rejects, that when, that when God looks at the soul and says, well, I credit your, your faith as righteousness, which I admit as a Catholic he does, when I credit your faith as righteousness, the reason I'm doing that is I'm not actually seeing the character of your life. I'm seeing Christ in your place. I'm looking at the character of Christ's life and considering those acts of virtue as if they were yours. But the text never says that. Romans never says that. Right? What the text of Romans says is that my following the Mosaic Code, circumcising my child or myself and following the laws of Kashrit or even keeping the Ten Commandments, 
the letter of the law, adhering to that, will not win me God's favor. And, and on that, Protestants Catholics are totally agreed, totally agreed. What Paul says happens, the reason that my faith is credited as righteousness is because of the transformation of the heart that he speaks about in Romans 2, 25 to 29, and Romans 5. It's the pouring of God's love into my life so that I now walk according to the Spirit and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Romans 2, 13 says, not those who hear the law, it's those who obey it who will be declared righteous. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. Eight three three two eight eight E W T N is our toll free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. We are giving you free, unfettered access to a former Calvinist right here on E W T N's Call to Communion with Doctor David Anders. Our old buddy Forrester is watching on YouTube, and he says, Dr. Anders, how do we respond to Orthodox who reject original sin in favor of ancestral sin? Is there a real difference between the two? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. <clears throat> so, you know, the doctrine of original sin, <coughs> excuse me, as the Catholic Church understands it, uh, means simply that we are not born into the world with sanctifying grace. Right, Adam and Eve were created in the state of grace. They were created with <coughs> they were created with uh, that uh, that adoptive filial intimacy with God, which they lost, and uh, and their progeny likewise lost. And so, uh, original sin is not some sort of positive substance. It in adhering to the soul, you know, like uh, like glue or toothpaste within a toothpaste tube. It really is, strictly speaking, a privation. It is the lack of something, the lack of that filial intimacy with God, the lack of that um, uh, of that participation in the divine nature. And uh, likewise, there is a uh, sort of a weakening of, of the human constitution uh, such that works of specific works of virtue uh, become very difficult for us. We call these the wounds of original sin, uh, the things like concupiscence, which is this immoderate, desire for bodily pleasure, or ignorance of our true moral condition, um, moral weakness, um, uh, uh, malice, which is, uh, you know, the, the tendency to egotism. And these things in themselves are not sins, they're occasions of sin, and they're the fruits of uh, losing that intimacy, that uh, preternatural intimacy with God. So, you know, I, the, the idea of original sin as inherited guilt uh, is one that's very common in the Protestant world, and there were even some Puritan theologians that maintained that it would be just if God condemned an aborted fetus to an eternity of hell uh, because they would be held personally responsible for the guilt of original sin. And in the Protestant view, it is a kind of guilt. It's something for which you deserve punishment in spite of the fact that you didn't individually cooperate in the sin of Adam. Um, Protestants also tend to view uh, original sin as not just a privation, but as more like a positive infection that vitiates all of your moral activity, and so that whatever you do uh, is uh, is sinful, even even your acts of apparent acts of virtue, like you know healing the sick and giving food to the poor, would be sinful just in virtue of this contamination. That's the typical Protestant view, which Catholics reject. 
Um, so, you know, I, I think there's less daylight between the Orthodox and Catholics than they often uh, like to suggest, if you really understand what the Church teaches about original sin, that it's it's not some positive substance adhering to the soul, it's not personal guilt. The Catechism says original sin isn't re- really sin at all except in an analogous way. It uses that language. It's sin by analogy, uh, not a univocal predication of sin. And so I don't think there's, there's as much daylight. Now, the uh, I'm going to characterize the Orthodox position here, and I don't want to be unfair, and if I'm being unfair, please let me know. Um, but there's a deep antipathy in the East to any Latin dogma that's not widely held in the East just in virtue of being Latin, right? And there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a prejudice about the way Latins do theology, uh, about the idioms of Latin theology as being overly legal and, uh, and juridical in nature. And the, the East is very proud of what they understand to be a more they would use the term mystical, I think, uh, uh, way of accounting for the relationship of God to the soul and the moral life. And they think that Latins are sort of weighed down with this, sort of le- freighted with this legalistic, juridical framework, and original sin fits into that larger uh, uh, characterization. Um, but I think if you, can, if you can sort of get past that prejudice, and I think it is kind of like there are different theological idioms there always have been in the church. And if you can sort of get beyond that and recognize its substance, I don't think they're all that different, personally. Um, but um, uh, that's my response. Uh, we've got an email here from Ted in Jacksonville, Florida, and it's a follow-up to a question he had previously asked you. He said, I need to rephrase my question about Eucharistic miracles. I am rather confused about Dr. Anders' answer. As far as I know, the Catholic Church's definition of a properly consecrated host by a Catholic priest is it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So, according to Dr. Anders, when the host, by scientific evidence, becomes a living muscle of the heart, it ceases to be the Eucharist. That would mean it no longer is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Is that the case, as you stated in my original question, Thank you for your patience, Dr. Anders. God bless you uh, to Tom and the entire staff. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Let me clarify the Church's teaching on the nature of the Eucharist. The Church teaches precisely that the Eucharist is the substance of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. The substance of Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. So we can say in an imprecise way, it's Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. But we have to be specific. We need to qualify that to avoid confusion. It is the substance of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. It is not any of the properties, or to use a technical term, accidents of his body, blood, soul, and divinity. What's an accident? What's a property? Well, you know, property of my body would be like, you know, that I weigh a certain amount. And uh, hopefully it's less today than it was yesterday. Um, that it is, uh, you know, that my skin has a certain hue or color to it, uh, that I am a particular height. Um, you know, presumably, if you cooked me and ate me, it'd have a kind of particular flavor, right? All of the, I smell a certain way, and my voice sounds a certain way. All of these things are properties of my physical body, uh, but they are not essential to the substance of my body as body, right? You can perform an, an act of intellectually abstracting the substance of my body 
from these particularizing properties. I, I could, for example, shrink. I could get shorter, and it wouldn't change the substance of my body. Uh, you know, I could uh, change my diet. Maybe I'd smell better. wouldn't change the substance. All of those aspects are properties. None of those are in the Eucharist, by definition. By definition, they're not there. Um, and the, uh, uh, what, the, what the host looks like, what the chalice looks like, by definition, is it looks like bread and wine. It looks like bread and wine. Uh, my only point with respect to Eucharistic miracles is they no longer look like bread and wine. And so the essential definition of the Eucharist as a sign of Christ's body, which is also the substance of his body, something that looks like bread and wine, but is in fact the substance of Christ's body and blood, that specific definition would have to be altered a bit to incorporate the reality of Eucharistic miracles because they don't look like bread and wine. And, and they don't look like the substance of Christ's body and blood. They look like a part of it, like heart tissue, for example. But we don't say of the Eucharist, Jesus' heart tissue alone is there, right? And we, we wouldn't make those kind of distinctions. All of Christ, all of the substance of Christ's body and blood is there, not just some particular part of his body abstracted from the whole organism and uh, appearing as heart tissue, so my only point in making the distinction is to say that Eucharistic miracles are something that's extraordinary. It's not the ordinary mode of participating in Christ's body and blood in the, in the liturgical act of Holy Communion or in the sacrifice of the Mass. It's something over and against that, over and above that. Um, now, if God wants to do a Eucharistic miracle, I'm certainly not going to tell him not to. That's his business, right? And I recognize that they are very important for the faith of many people, um, and I would encourage that. Uh, but you, you can't do your dogmatic theology. You can't do your sacramental theology starting with a miracle like the Eucharistic miracle and reasoning backwards to the host. You have to start your dogmatic theology with the teaching of the Church, with the teaching of sacred scripture, with sacred tradition, and then go the other way. It's, any, any kind of claim to miracle or private revelation works this way. So, you know, our Mariology, we've ground our Mariology, the dogmas of the Blessed Virgin Mary, in the data of Revelation. We don't start with a Marian apparition and work backwards to dogma. We start with dogma to understand the Marian apparition. You start with the dogma of the Eucharist to understand the Eucharistic miracle. You don't try to understand the dogma of the Eucharist by starting with the Eucharistic miracle. That's my only point. The dogma comes first. The teaching of the Church always comes first. Uh, purported revelations and miracles are evaluated by the Church. They can be either approved or not approved, but they're never where we start to do our dogma. We start with Scripture, tradition, and the magisterium of the Church. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Diane's a first-time caller listening in Dayton, Ohio, to Sacred Heart Radio. Diane, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello. I have a question on behalf of my son. Um, he's very logical, and he asked me this question. I did not know how to answer it. Um, he wants to know, how can Mary have been born without original, son, without original sin, without being predestinated to say yes and be the mother of Jesus? So basically his question is, since she does not have concupiscence, her decision is always going to be to follow God's will automatically. So how is that not predestination? It's absolutely predestination. She's totally predestined. 100%. Absolutely. 100% predestined. 
Jesus was 100% predestined to be the Messiah. God, before eternity, in eternity past, determined that the second person of the Trinity would become incarnate of this flesh, the flesh, the flesh of the Virgin Mary, at that time in that place. And in the decree uh, formally defining the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, um, Pope Pius IX wrote that the same decree whereby God determined the time and place and nature of the Incarnation included the predestination of Mary to her own Immaculate Conception and to her ultimate dignity of, as being the Mother of God. So make no mistake, the Catholic Church absolutely does have a doctrine of predestination. However, it is not the Calvinist doctrine of double predestination, and that's the thing that people don't understand, and that may be what's bothering your son. Uh, when we say that the Church rejects predestination, we mean that we reject Calvin's horrible idea of double predestination, namely the idea that God... Uh, would pick out from eternity past a specific soul uh, for, the, for the particular purpose of sending that soul to hell, that God determines from eternity past, without any regard to our future merits, this soul I am creating so that I can send him to hell forever. That, that we radically reject. Uh, but there's no, there's no question that God predestines. Now let's, let's look at how that works out and what the purpose of it is in divine redemption. And it's quite beautiful, in fact. Uh, personally, I think one of the best instances of predestination to regard in Scripture is the calling of Abraham. Absolutely, God picked out Abraham. You know, Abraham did not send up a, you know, a flag and say, God, if you're looking for volunteers in ancient, you know, or of the Chaldeans, know that I'm, I'm available if you want to call somebody. And then, you know, God took applications and Abraham, you know, took a graduate record exam or something and got the highest score for sainthood, and God picked Abraham out of, you know, several candidates. No, 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 no. Abraham didn't know. This was a surprise to Abraham. God called Abraham because God picked Abraham from everybody else on the entire planet for a specific dignity, namely that he would be the father of a great nation and his descendants, through his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed, especially through his ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. Abraham didn't choose this dignity for himself. He didn't earn this dignity. He had no anticipation, came out of the blue to Abraham. God just picked him specially. But for what reason did God pick Abraham so that he could send everybody else to hell? And see, that's kind of the Calvinist view, that God picks out a few so that he can magnify his grace in some and magnify his justice in all those that he damns. But that's not why God picked Abraham. He didn't pick Abraham so that he could glory in the death of everybody else. He picked Abraham so that Abraham could be a blessing to all the nations. It was election to service, election to a specific vocation, namely the vocation of being the, the, the progenitor, the father of this great race through which all nations would be blessed. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of predestination. You know, um, it's not as though God said, well, I need somebody for the second person to become incarnate in. I need some humanity— uh, again, let's take applications. Uh, you know, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger looks pretty good. He's got a nice body. Let's 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 become incarnate in that human nature. Or you know, or Brad Pitt's pretty good-looking fellow. Let's become incarnate in that human nature. No, no, no. God had in mind a specific human nature. That human nature that was born of Mary in Judea in the first century uh, in Bethlehem. That that nature and not some other nature. God predestined before the beginning of time would be the nature assumed by the second person of the Trinity incarnation. But for what reason? 
Was it so that God could elect one person to Messiahship and damn everybody else? No. He elected one person to Messiahship so that through him, all things could be reconciled to God. It's for the sake of the world. Now, here's where we stand. We as Catholics are elect. We're predestined. To what? To being members of Christ's body. For what purpose? Vatican Council put it the best. To be the light of the world. To bring the message of Christ and salvation to everyone. To be salt and light. To be yeast. Uh, to spread the knowledge of God, of justice and mercy, to the entire planet. It's election to service. It's election to love. It's election to the special identity of being a Catholic so that we can extend the grace of the Incarnation to the entire world. Election, yes. Predestination, yes. But to glory, not to damnation. Let me help Diane with the next logical question she might get from her son. What does this do about all the people you just talked about's free will? Ah, yes. Okay, so beautiful answer, beautiful answer. You're not free until you have grace. You're not really free until you have grace. Um, you know, the best way I can illustrate this is you think about the life of a, uh, of a drug addict. How much freedom of action does a drug, habit, drug addict have? A real hardcore addict? Well, you know, I guess they can pick the, 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 the color of their meth pipe. You know, they can choose what dealer they're going to go to. Um, if they haven't destroyed, if they haven't blown out all of their veins, you know, they can decide to pick between the vein between their, you know, big toe and middle toe on their left foot or on their right foot. This is not a lot of freedom of action. Everything else about their life is constrained. Their sphere of awareness, of salience, is reduced to nothing. It's just to feeding the addiction. Freedom for that person is freedom from that craving. And the ability to actually engage life in the true and the beautiful in a much more expansive and humane way. All of us are trapped in concupiscence and pride and egotism and lusts and gluttony and anger. Uh, these, uh, these maladaptive, destructive emotions and tendencies constrain our lives, constrain our openness to the good, and they enslave us. And when grace comes, it opens us up to the possibility of our true humanity to find and experience God and the good and the true and the beautiful in all things. It enables us to be far more deeply ourselves. That's why it was Pope Gregory the Great who said, Christians, become what you are. Become what you are. Open yourself up to the true humanity that God has given you and restored to you in Jesus Christ. Grace is profoundly enabling. It is liberating. It is freeing. Right? We're not truly free until we're given grace. How's that, Diane? Well, I know he's going to follow up with this question to me. Will be, Mary does not have concupiscence, correct? Correct, correct. So she's 100% great. So she's 100% going to follow God's will. Yep. So when the angel Gabriel told her that she was going to conceive a child, Jesus, there's no chance like, in that regard, like, it basically she has no free will, because there's oh, no oh, chance she's oh, going oh, to Oh, wait, I hear you, I hear you, but you're confusing two things, right? What, what are the odds that I'm going to leave my wife this afternoon? Zero. No, no chance of it. I will die before I leave my wife. She will die before she leaves me. We actually promised that a long time ago. I will be with you till death do us part. Not going to leave her, no matter what. Totally, totally constrained by that vow and by that intent. 
does that mean that I'm not free? Is my continued virtuous decision, I don't have a lot of virtues, but this is one, I'm not going to leave my wife. Is my continued virtuous decision to remain faithful to my wife, does that mean that, I'm, that I don't do so freely? No. For freedom means that I can deliberate about moral goods, that I can evaluate them and I can choose the better. I'm not constrained by my passions to choose the lesser. That's just not what freedom means. Freedom means that I, am, I can deliberate and choose the good. The, the more uh, confirmed I am in grace, the freer I am, even though my sphere of action is defined by the good, the true, and the beautiful. In this case, the good, true, and beautiful thing for me to do is stay with my wife. It doesn't mean I'm not free. You know, and if I, if I wanted to, which I never would, I suppose I could plunge myself into a life of dereliction and dissolution and deliberately corrupt my will such that it became a, a conceivable possibility me for, to me to perform some enormity like leaving her. But why on God's great earth would I ever want to do that? And the same thing you could say of Mary. She freely chose to do what was the best, right, truest, just thing to do. The problem he has is he has this doctrine of freedom that suggests that freedom means that, I have, that I'm kind of indifferent. Freedom, Eve, Adam free, and Eve didn't have concupiscence. Um, yeah, but they weren't, they weren't confirmed in virtue either. Thanks, Diane. We appreciate the phone call today, and best of luck in those conversations with your son. We'll keep you in our prayers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Join us this weekend for the encore of The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. It's tomorrow night at 10 Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. This week is guests are Claire Asquith, the author of Shakespeare and the Resistance, Megan Cox-Gordon, children's book critic for the Wall Street Journal, and the author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. And finally, Marcus Zusak, the best-selling young adult novelist and author of Bridge of Clay. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. John writes in, Dr. Anders, how do... All right, I often hear you deny this is a this is a theme for the bottom back half of the week. All right. I often hear you deny that the crucifixion of Christ was not a penal substitutionary death. If that's true, how do you understand the following verses? Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And 1 Peter 3:18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's do the second one first, okay? So the Catholic position is exactly as Peter put it, that the righteous died for the sake of the unrighteous. Yeah, we believe that. Jesus was righteous. We're unrighteous. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He died for us. Of course, that's the Catholic position. But why did he die for us? To merit for us the grace of redemption, to merit for us the gift of the Holy Spirit, to merit for us the transformation of life, that he might put to death, sin, death, hell, and the devil, the curse of the law. All of those things are destroyed by the death of Christ, his descent into hell, his, his powerful ascension, resurrection, ascension into heaven. We're incorporated into him mystically through baptism. All of these things are, are worked within us. We recapitulate the power of Christ's death and resurrection in our own lives and are transformed in our character and become other Christs. We have the mind of Jesus. All these things are done in us through the power of Christ's crucifixion, which he did on our behalf. It was a substitutionary death, but not a penal substitution. 
was Christ cursed by man? Yeah, absolutely. Christ stepped into the position. The book of Isaiah says that we regarded him, that's a very important qualification, as rejected by God and afflicted. Christ, uh, Christ suffered as if right, he were cut off by God, rejected. He wasn't, in fact. He wasn't, in fact, cut off from God. But the world regarded his death as ignominious. He suffered every possible indignity um, on our behalf so that we could be saved. But nowhere do these texts ever suggest that God regarded Jesus with enmity because of our sins, which he regarded as if they were Jesus's. See, that's the Reformed view. The, the Calvinist view is that Jesus actually suffered the alienation of the damned on the cross because God regarded him as if he were us. He saw Christ as if he were, in fact, personally a sinner and thus alienated from the Father. These texts of Scripture that you've mentioned say nothing of the sort. But to be clear, do Catholics think the death of Christ was substitutionary? Yes. Was it on our behalf? Yes. Was it the righteous for the wicked? Yes. But we understand what that means is entirely different in a Catholic idiom from a Protestant one. Big congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Clarkston Catholic Radio in Clarkston, Washington, celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to John Fazari and KFUZ 103.3 from all of us here at EWTN. Well, David, it's been a quick 55 minutes or so. Thanks so much for being so gracious with your time. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams once again sitting in for Tom Price. Tom will be back on Monday, God willing, and the Lord doesn't return. And we'll be here with another brand spanking new edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Until we get together then, have a great weekend and God bless.